the game. This is Love Set Match. I mean, Andre Agassi had this goal, you don't have to be better than everyone else in the draw when you go out on the court. Like, you have to be better than someone that's across the net. I think you got to stay active in a sport sense, you know, go out there, do some sports. I think it always makes you feel better, maybe more tired in the very moment, but actually the rest of the day feels better. And then I think giving back as well, you know, making other people happy is going to give you a good feeling too. Welcome to Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. This podcast is sponsored by Tennis Pal. Tennis Pal for iPhone and Android is an app for anything tennis. It connects you with other players and coaches to chat, schedule, playtime, and share moments with. Download the app today at tennispal.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Philip Kim, also known as the tennis pro for the historic Langham Huntington Hotel in sunny Southern California. I can't wait to hear what Richard has to say um, about everything. Yeah, I think it's so great to have him. And thank you, Richard, for being a part of this podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, Richard has a, a wonderful tennis history. He is, he's actually important here in Southern California because he organizes tennis in Studio City right here in Southern California and has worked with hundreds of players. He started in San Diego at the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club and organized players there as well. He's gotten to the place where he really has put together a system that has helped grow tennis and it, he's written a book called Drop In Tennis Secrets. So he's going to be talking about that book as well. But his newsletter is called Tennis Club Business, and it's something that specifically encourages and supports tennis club businesses um, all around the country and tennis pros and people who are involved in the industry. And, you know, he's taken issue with the USTA and all the money they spent on the national campus and the disorganization that they had and, you know, lots of issues. And he's a little bit more hopeful about them right now. So I'm interested to hear your point of view on what he says about uh, the USTA, the largest tennis body in the United States. Well, I can't wait to hear so I can comment. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's roll that interview right now. Here's Richard Nahar from Tennis Club Business. Let's welcome my good friend, Rich Nayer. Thank you, Rich, so much for joining us here on Tennis Pal Chronicles. My pleasure. Rich, I've known you for many years now, and I got to say, you are the go-to guy in Los Angeles. I mean, ever since I've started playing tennis and getting into it, I did a lot of research, and I was trying to connect with the who's who of LA tennis, and I felt like your name kept coming up, and you were so gracious. You invited me to events. You allowed me to tag along with you to um, USPTA conferences and stuff, so thank you so much for all that you've done to open up tennis for people like me throughout Los Angeles and really all over over the world now. Now you're making me blush? <laughs> well, you deserve it. You honestly do. But I don't know that I know your history. So can you tell me a little bit about your history in tennis and how did that start? Well, tennis started only after I, I immigrated to the United States from Germany. Okay. So I immigrated in 1985 and uh, uh, moved to the Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania. And I had a yes. neighbor who was a very bad tennis player. <laughs> and he told me how to play tennis really bad. 
Ah, we all have one of those. That's yes. how I started out. And um, for years, I couldn't improve at all because all I had was this guy. <laughs> so, But I was grateful because he was a, was a senior player and he and his friends, they took me in, although I didn't play at all. A yeah. bloody beginner, and they still took me in, which was nice of him. Yes. And when I moved to the West Coast in 1992, um, a few years later, 94, I became a member of the Bobby Ricks Tennis Club. And that's where I, in Encinitas, uh, near San Diego. And that's where I played a little bit more with, uh, with uh, dedication. Yeah, and how would you describe the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club at that time? I mean, that's a pretty big name, obviously huge name in the world of tennis because Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. Uh, what was happening in the 90s at that club? Um, the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club um, was owned by the former sidekick of Bobby Riggs. His name is Lorne Kuhle. And he, um, he is, he's a great guy. He arranges uh, um, tournaments and he's, he's doing all sorts of good things in tennis. He sold the club, by the way, a few years ago. And it's now a tennis and pickleball club. Of course it is. Yeah, but what I noticed at the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club is... The, the people running it were really busy with juniors and uh, with, with lessons and stuff. They didn't want, uh, they didn't have the time and the interest to do, um, to arrange matches and uh, do, do like mix-ups, mixers. So I started to do this f um, for them in exchange for membership. In a, and I also did their newsletter. Oh, and, great. So you uh, kind of grew I, their social tennis program. Yeah, that's how I, and I think it was in 1998, that's how I got into doing all these things and starting to arrange matches for people. And the mixers I set up at the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club were very popular. A lot of people came to these mixers. That's great. Well, I know Encinitas and San Diego in general is a big tennis city, tennis area. So I guess a lot of people playing in the 90s during that time. Yes, it was it was big. It is still big. Um, but pickleball, of course, has taken over a little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pickleball lines here in Los Angeles as well. And then how did you end up in Los Angeles and, and become part of this scene? I followed my heart. So I met this woman and she lived up in Sherman Oaks. And I had to make a decision. Do I want to have a long-distance relationship from San Diego to the Lo Los Angeles area or... Shall I move up? I, at the time, I used to work for Active.com. Oh, In sure. San Diego, I was the team lead on the USGA Tennis Link team for adult leaks and NTRP ratings. Wow. And they allowed me to, um, to work from home um, after I moved up to the Sherman Oaks area. That's how I got up here. The woman is not there anymore, but I am still here. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're so glad that she brought you up here because you've done so much for Los Angeles. And you got deeper and deeper into tennis and, and then actually the tennis business side of things. Is that right? Yeah. Um, after I left Active, I started my own company, the Tennis Media Group, and I started to write for tennis newsletters and for tennis magazines like Inside Tennis and um, became quite successful in it. I loved it. And um, since I was in the Los Angeles, Hollywood area, I also started writing um, scripts. 
And uh, I started acting. I started a whole bunch of things up here. And I loved it. And that's why I'm still here. <laughs> and, yeah, um, and Yeah. And in 2014, I created a newsletter for tennis professionals, tennis club owners called Tennis Club Business. And I'm uh, writing and co producing this uh, newsletter now since 2014. Yes, the Tennis Club Business Newsletter is so important. I love reading it every time you send it out. There's so much insider information on, on the state of tennis and what's happening in tennis. And I feel like I learned so much from you because you're very opinionated. You have a lot of things that you want to say about the state of tennis, the USTA, uh, tennis bodies, how we learn tennis. So g break it down for us. Where do you stand with where tennis is today? Well... One of the big themes throughout my newsletter in the last two years was pointing out where the USTA made mistakes in the last 20 years and what they were really doing and what they were not doing. I call this holding their feet to the fire. So we were pointing out where, where they were wasting hundreds of millions of dollars in the last 20 years. And... Um, money that didn't go where it should go uh, down to gra grassroots tennis in, in this country. And so we were pointing out all these these uh, little things um, and um, and in the meantime the U there, there were some changes in the USDA which uh, I noted of course um, I was very pleased to see that the, the old guard is changing a little bit at the USDA the new um, CEO in there did something none of the USDA executives had ever done. Um, in my six years of writing the newsletter, he actually reached out to me, and not once, but several times. And I, I think this was, uh, this was a good thing, a very encouraging thing. And he also, um, after the, um, the problem started with the pandemic, he and the USDA board took some more, some more steps in the right direction, in my opinion. And they were getting rid of some people. They were they are decimating the player development department uh, for the most part. And this is one area where I concentrated on a little bit in the last few years because it was a totally useless department that wasted so much money with 61 people employed. So, so I think they're, they're going in the right direction at the moment. That's the very encouraging thing right now. Well, that is so exciting to hear that your newsletter is actually making change, getting rec the recognition it deserves, and that uh, the USTA is listening to you. How did it sit with your listeners? I mean, your, your newsletter has been around for six years. When you first started having this kind of dialogue, what was the feedback you got? Well, you know... The feedback during the last two or three years was always very encouraging because there are so many tennis professionals and club owners and tennis directors out there who have the same opinion. They, they don't like how heavy-handed the USTA was um, in, in, in bringing out all those programs. Some of them worked, most of them didn't work. I think the only good program that ever worked uh, for the USDA was the Adult League program. And 
to some extent the uh, the um, junior team te team tennis program as well. But all the other programs and initiatives they are uh, they were presenting and uh, shoving down our throats were pretty much useless, and they didn't result in the one thing they needed to do. And this is in the USDA's mission statement to grow tennis. They did not. But um, as I said, I'm quite encouraged that things may change around a little bit, especially looking at some of the things they've been doing lately. That's exciting. What are some of the actions that you're seeing that are encouraging? Well, the the CEO has conveyed through press releases and through personal um, um, communication on the telephone that he is a, a grassroots guy. He wants to he wants to go into the um, into the field, talk to the clubs which is a new thing because the USDA didn't used to used to have a good relationship with many clubs in the past and um, talk to tennis professionals who know so much about the sport and how to grow the sport in their area and so go out and, and communicate with people. And this is something I, I encourage, of course. Yeah, I think it's really great that they are working on their communication and trying to build community tennis, which you know is my passion as well. And I actually was an employee of the USTA trying to build recreational tennis in Azusa. And I've got to say my experience with them was really great. They, they When the tennis program, Rec Tennis, folded because they lost their funding, because it was going to fund the national campus, they actually turned the whole program over to me and to the city of Azusa, and we're continuing that program till today. And I really am grateful for that. Uh, I just wish that rec tennis program could still continue. It, it came out of PNW, and it really was about getting more people into the game, and I just loved my experience in working with them during that time. Well, you're... you're Mentioning one area that is a, another area of contention, this is the uh, the new National Tennis Center in, in Lake Nona in Orlando, Florida. This is another one of those areas where the USDA spent so much money and uh, created this huge uh, center, um, put so many millions of dollars into this center that really is only for a few people And um, the same money could have been spent in so many other zip codes here in this country. It's just unreal. So they're losing money every year on this um, on this huge um, tennis mega center, and um, to 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 make this um, facility profitable is probably impossible. Wow! And and all the members are paying for it. Yeah. And do you know anything about the USTA uh, national campus here in Southern California? Because I know they have a lot of courts over there, and uh, I know it's hard to get onto those courts and practice. Yeah, but this is going to change, of course, um, with the after they have built this uh, Kimmelman Center in uh, where is it in Carson? Right. I don't uh, know if you heard of that. Yes, uh -huh. soccer, tennis, basketball. 50-some courts. Yeah. I'm not so sure. I'm, I look at all those mega centers that are being built by USDA sections in, in parts of this country, and I'm shaking my head because this, it's all happening in detriment to the, to the regular tennis clubs. And that's why I've been saying for years the USDA has a 
very weird, very strange um, uh, relationship or non-relationship with tennis clubs in this country. They prefer some tennis clubs, the ones that have all those uh, people that are on the board, the ones that have these huge um, youth tennis um, um, programs going. But most of the tennis clubs in this country that don't, that are not um, in this category, the USTA has a really bad relationship with them. And, and so these mega centers that are coming up in several parts of this country, I'm a little bit um, disturbed by all this. I don't know if this is the right thing to do. Well, and you've got to think that, especially in this time of pandemic, uh, and with like the news of the Claremont Country Club closing uh, because of financial uh, hardship, that the whole landscape of tennis may have to change. Uh, there's just not a lot of places where y you you have so much money going into tennis that can help it to grow. And this is where we really need the USTA to help at the local community. And you're involved in local, right? You run a really great drop-in center at, in Burbank. Do you, are you still involved in that? Yeah, we have uh, drop-in tennis. I organize in Studio City and in Woodland Hills. I've done this in, ten, in San Diego for 10 years. We had five locations in San Diego every week. And now in, uh, in, um, in the valley here, we have uh, two locations and we're doing four drop-ins every week. Well, and that's a great segue into your new book called Drop-In Tennis Secrets. So I guess you've learned a ton in building these great drop-in programs. Tell us a little bit about this new book. Yeah, um, I've done, I want to say, way over two and a half thousand drop-in events myself, organized and uh, ran them um, for 10 years in San Diego, now for 11 years up here in the Valley. So I, you can say I wrote the book on drop-in tennis. And I wanted to do this book for the longest time. And now during all this, this time I had um, during the pandemic, and I still have, I decided I write it. And um, it's basically designed as a roadmap for two kinds of people. Number one, tennis players who like to organize and who, do, who want to create a little part-time business organizing tennis for their friends and for local tennis players in their area. And the other group is for tennis professionals who want to have a second leg to stand on, do a little another side hustle, they call it, to create those, those local tennis events in their area and unite those uh, those players and um, actually not only organize tennis matches for money, but also create a pool of tennis players for themselves for their for their own clinics and lessons. So it's it's a um, it's an interesting concept. I've proven in the last twenty four years that it works. I have. Um, I just told someone today, in the in 21 years in Southern California, I have always had money to buy my groceries every week, just from these tennis. I, know, I remember one year in in um, San Diego where I made over twenty two thousand dollars on the side, cash with drop in tennis, just by organizing these matches and these 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 meetups for people. 
That's so great. And I love the idea that tennis supports you as well. Obviously, it's not making us mega rich, but it, we're doing what we love, and it uh, allows us to keep doing what we love. But you're doing something that's so important for the tennis community. You're building a network of players to play with, uh, to be a part of, and I think that's how tennis grows within community because it's just it's not something you can practice yourself. It's something you want to do with a, a family, if you will. Yeah, and mind you, you don't have to think small with uh, building such a tennis network. You you can start locally in your area and do just one uh, tennis network and um, and and uh, find one host club where you arrange the matches for people. You can also expand and have a second club in your in your immediate area. You can also expand and have several locations in your entire region. For instance, I could easily do two locations here in the Valley, one in Los Angeles, uh, two in Orange County, I guess, and, and one or two or three in the San Diego area. And if you think a little bit further, you can actually build those tennis networks uh, and arrange those drop-in matches for people in the entire state if you are an entrepreneur and want to do a little bit more. That sounds so exciting. I mean, that's right up my alley, so I definitely need to follow up with you on this. Uh, how was someone to find your book? Where is it online? It's on on uh, Amazon, and it's available in paperback and in Kindle format. And you just go to Amazon and you, you search for drop-in tennis secrets. Drop-in tennis secrets. Great. And I'm definitely going to put a link on my blog and talk about this new book that I think is great. So they can also visit our blog and see it in the show notes as well. Super. Rich, you, you're doing so much. It's, is there anything else you'd like to share about? what? How is the state of tennis for you within this COVID environment? Well, I had, uh, unfortunately, in January, end of January, I had an injury to my rotator cuff, a tear. Oh, no. And um, I'm still on in physical therapy now. I haven't played since the beginning of uh, since the end of January, and um, I will probably not be able to play until beginning of next year. Uh, but I do have a nice little gadget here in my office. It's called the Billie Jean King Eye Coach. Oh, sure. And this helps me to practice with my other arm, <laughs> with my <laughs> left hand, working and on your backhand then. Yeah, and I hope to be able to maybe if he, if I can't play with my right hand anymore, maybe play with my left hand. That's exciting. But what I want to uh, point out one thing that I think is really important: if you want to engage in this um, endeavor to to create a tennis network or many tennis networks and um, and organize drop-in tennis for people. One thing is really, really important, apart from the fact that there are some tips in my book that I call secret sauces that are really, really important. But one thing is, is essential, you have to be a nice guy. You have to be able to deal with all sorts of people and be nice. You know what I mean? I do. And the tennis community is very competitive in some ways and some, you know, it, it attracts people who are not so nice sometimes. Yeah, I tell you a little story. What Please. I what happened to me 
in uh, San Diego, the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club. I started to play tennis. I knew very little. I was a bad 2.0, I guess. I thought I was a 3.5. So, but I was a miserable son of a gun. I No one really liked playing with me. My girlfriend and I, we, she was better than me. And uh, we signed up for a, for a league team, a USDA league. I think it was a 3.5 league. And of course, we lost all the matches because of me. Right. But I, I never saw myself as being at fault here. I always saw everyone else being the faulty person. So I was screaming on the court. I was throwing rackets. I was blaming her. And one day she walked out on me in the middle of a league match and said, I'm never going to play with you again. So, so I didn't realize at the time how, what that actually meant. But my best friend, Danny, he, um, he called me and said, hey, you and I, we're going to have a drink tomorrow. So we went to this bar in Del Mar. We had a few tequila. And he explained to me, he was a member of the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club too, of course. And he explained to me, Rich, I have to give you good news and bad news. The bad news is no one at our club wants to play with you anymore. <laughs> and I said, oh Ouch. my God, I was Ouch. shocked. I was completely shocked. Didn't, it yeah. never occurred to me that this was my fault. Right. And he said, but there's, here's the good news. I can help you, he said. I want to do two things with you. The first is, I want to teach you a little bit tennis so you can get better, man. You got to be better in tennis so you have more fun. <laughs> right. So I said, fine, what's the other thing? He said, I have to teach you some people skills. So ah. for the next three months, I practiced tennis with my friend Danny. And um, he taught me a lot of people skills. And after three months, he, sa he said, um, okay, let's go back to the club and play. And I started to play again at the Bobby Ricks tennis clubs. And within a, four, within a few weeks, everyone wanted to play with me. That's so great. And you know what I found? During all this time, one of the things that, that, that really stuck in my mind And it's, it's true still today, for, at least for me, and I know for many other people too. When you're not having fun on the tennis court, you're not playing well. But when you play well, you have fun on the tennis court. It's much more fun. So it's all related. And um, it was a huge lesson for me. And I carried it forward into my, into my dealings with the tennis networks in San Diego and here. And it helped me tremendously. That's so great. And and how are you becoming that kind of mentor for people? Because I know there's a lot of people out there that really take tennis to heart, uh, as they should. They should get passionate about it. They should be intense about it. But really, it, it, it in many ways, they hold it to define who they are and their value. And if they lose, they feel you know horrible, and that's why they explode into anger. How are you able to help people with that? Well, I tell people, come on, man, it's not Wimbledon here. We're not playing the French <laughs> Open. We're just playing a friendly match. But that's I right. do something that helps in this regard. When, when new players come to join my group, I, I observe them. I want to know 
if they are, how they are. I ask them when they come in, are you a nice person? And if they say no, then they, they can't even start to play with us. <laughs> but, but if they are, if they say yes, and, and I see during the first two or three sets that they really aren't, I make sure they leave again and never come back unless they change. I am also sending people home who misbehave. And I tell people, you can't come back for two or three months um, until you learned your lesson. So all the players in my network are all nice people. That's and great. they can trust that people coming in are nice people as well. Yeah. So that's, that's such an important part. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I, I especially feel sorry uh, or I feel a lot of uh, sympathy for the women who play tennis because there are so many guys who play tennis who are hitting on women or who kind of are mean to them when they're playing. And uh, I've often taught like uh, classes for just women only so that they could feel comfortable and safe. Uh, how are you helping in that regard? Or do you have any advice or wisdom? Yeah, well, that's part of my secret sauce. You have to buy the book. <laughs> okay, there we go. We need <laughs> but, this book. But one thing, sure. um, one thing I'm doing, of course, is I'm able to separate the levels a little bit. So when there's a 3.0 player and and we have we start from 3.0 to 4.5 in our group. When there's a 3.0 player, he will not play with 4.0s or 4.5s. Unless it really really doesn't work any other way. Um, because that's that's a sure fire way to get to to invite trouble into your group because n Neither the 3.0 player nor the 4.0 or 4.5 player will have fun in that match. Right. And the goal always has to be after every set, they're playing four sets in my group every, every time we have a, a drop-in mix-up. After every match, they have to come back to get their new court and player and, and partner assignment. And after every match, they have to be happy. So... If I mix them up the wrong way and they come back and they are not happy and maybe consistently not happy, these people will not come back. So it's essential for me to always separate the levels as much as I can. I've been to, to um, mixers um, at, the, at other tennis centers and um, tennis professionals running those mixers And they were having a good time. They putting the beginners with the advanced players and so forth and so forth. And they think everyone is happy, but then they find out that next week people are not coming back. The better people are not coming back. And they are stuck with the beginners <laughs> and with the <laughs> lower level players. Yes. And that's a surefire way to, for disaster in, in such a situation. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of really great wisdom in Drop-In Tennis Secrets. So I'm looking forward to reading that and uh, definitely going to share that in the show notes. Rich, we're coming up. Yes. Uh, and we're coming up with the USTA's US Open uh, right around the corner. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on what's happening. I'm, I'm kind of amazed that they're still holding it. Uh, and whether it's going to happen or not, it seems like they're pushing it forward right now. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I was one of those who early on said it's probably not going to happen. But 
I'm, I'm seeing what um, the USDA is doing right now, and I've learned how important it is for tennis overall in this country that this, um, this event will happen one way or another because of the money it creates. And even if it's only $20 million dollars that, that are, that are um, left over as profit, or maybe even only $10 million, dollars, it's, it's $10, $20 million dollars that is desperately needed in the sections, for instance. And the USDA has committed to um, pay, I think, almost the same amount of like 50-some million dollars to the section as they, sections as they did last year. So every million that they make uh, a profit at the U.S. Open is really, really important. That's why I support the idea of, of uh, doing it. And it seems, although a few people have now um, um, said they are not coming, but I think it is important that we do it. And, and I think they will do it. Wow. And I, I guess the fear, of course, is what happened with the uh, Adria Tour, where Djokovic and Dimitrov and, you know, other players and coaches got infected with the virus, I just think if there's just one person who tests positive, the whole thing's going to shut down. Well, number one, they hope it's not going to be a party atmosphere like at the Adria tour. And on the other end, the other thing is they are testing them much more often. I don't know if there was any testing done at the uh, Djokovic Adria tour. Um But they have taken precautions. They are trying to create those individual bubble, bubbles for player, and they're testing them much more often. I think um, they're doing the right thing. So I have no concerns at the moment that this will be a disaster. I don't think so. Wow, that's great. Well, that's really encouraging to hear your side of it and that you're actually supporting uh, the U.S. Open continuing and going forward. Um, I have to ask you as we close our incredible interview, thank you again for your time. Today's Roger Federer's birthday, and I know you've met many, many people within tennis, and I just wanted to hear one or two stories of kind of the moments that you ha have enjoyed in meeting some of the pros. You know, the last time I saw Roger Federer at the BNP... Um, That's Indian Wells here. In, in, in Indian Wells. I helped the head company on their... At, on their booth, they had this booth there selling rackets and stuff. Yeah, I helped out a little bit because I'm such a fan of Head. And um, he came in. He's of course a Wilson guy, and he and his his entourage they went outside to um, do autographs. And I went outside too, and I watched him. And this was the most incredible thing I saw. He he did everything he could to make his fans happy. And when his handlers told told him, "Hey, we have another, um, we have another date. We need to rush out of here," he said, "No, I, I will go. I will go when the last person here gets an autograph from me." So he wow. kept going and going and going, selfies, autographs, videos, selfies, autograph, until everyone was happy. And then he said, "Now we go." <laughs> That is so cool to yep. hear that story from behind the scenes. And the other thing is Vadasco, <laughs> Mr. Vadasco in Indian Wells. I asked him what was his uh, his most memorable moment in his tennis career, and you know what he said? <laughs> It no. was winning Davis Cup for Spain without Nadal. <laughs> 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 and one more thing. One more thing. 
Yeah, please. Um, that was, I think, 2010 at the uh, LA, Op LA Open, I think it was the name, uh, the men's tournament at the uh, uh, UCLA, and which is now defunct. Right. Um, the owner-publisher of Inside Tennis, Bill Simons, he asked this player from Latvia, uh, what's his name? <laughs> I forgot his name. Um, oh, uh, yeah, uh, Ernest Golbis. Ernest's, Ernest's Golbis. Yeah. He asked him and he said, Ernest, tell us a little bit about Latvia. How is it there? And Ernest looked at him and said, you know, have you ever heard of Wikipedia? Look it up yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard some great stories about Golvis. <laughs> he, he's a piece of work, is what he I He is, heard. yeah. <laughs> what an interesting style of tennis he plays, too, with that spread eagle forehand. Yeah, yeah. So unusual. Well... Gosh, Rich, you have been uh, publishing Tennis Club Business since 2014, and I, I've got to say just longevity itself is success in this business. So thank you for doing what you're doing there. Uh, thank you personally for always inviting me and welcoming me into the tennis community, and I'm trying to do my little part over here to grow tennis, and I just partner with you on this. I love your new book. I'm excited about Drop-In Tennis Secrets, and thanks for sharing all your wisdom and your knowledge, and look forward to seeing you very soon. Well, actually, thank you, Philip, because you're doing your part as well, not only with your blog and with your all these online activities, but in your club as well. So yes, you we're are, trying. We're trying. You are the salt <laughs> of the earth when it comes to tennis. <laughs> I do thank love you, it. With, thank you very much for having me. Well, and thank you for spending Roger Federer's birthday with me. <laughs> it's nice <laughs> it's to celebrate huh? <laughs> this. Yes, thirty-nine. Uh, any any thoughts about him in the future on this day? Oh, I want him to to play some more. I want him yeah. to to get some more Grand Slams. That would be yeah. great. What a joy it is to watch him play and. If he could get to 21, I think we would be all so happy. One of the best moments of this year so far has been, uh, I don't know if you saw the video of him playing on the rooftops in Italy that just came out. What a joy that was that he, he went there to meet those beautiful girls that uh, were trying to keep tennis alive in their lives too. So. Yeah, you know, R Roger Federer is a very shrewd businessman. He yeah. knows what's good for him. He knows his fans He knows uh, what to do. He, he sets up very good businesses. He invests very smart. So he is, he is overall a um, pretty impressive package. <laughs> he sure is. Yeah, And, And he can play see, tennis. <laughs> <laughs> He's not bad. <laughs> well, thank you, Rich. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Philip. I do appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> 